we are always humbled by our craft. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like, I'll never beat my craft. The film will always win. Mm. And so um, that's important to me. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, a timeless tale of love is reimagined in director Joe Wright's romantic musical drama, Cyrano. Based on the well-known play, the film adds singing to the story of Cyrano de Bergerac, who can dazzle with a word or a sword, but convinced that his appearance makes a romance impossible, cannot declare his love for his beautiful friend, Roxanne. His situation becomes even more complicated when Roxanne falls in love with the handsome Christian. In addition to Cyrano, Mr. Wright's directorial credits include the feature films The Woman in the Window, Darkest Hour, Atonement, and Pride and Prejudice, an episode of the anthology series Black Mirror, and episodes of the miniseries The Last King. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Wright shares insight into the making of Cyrano with fellow director Sam Taylor Johnson. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hello, hello. Hello. Hi. Thanks for coming out. This isn't my um, usual thing to do, so I'm I'm going to um, just launch right in because Joe and I have known each other for a long time and been on a, on a, on a couple of decade journey together as friends. So it's actually quite nice to just sort of sit and chat and ask him questions on behalf of everyone else um, that they may want to hear answers to. But um, firstly, it's a beautiful film and, you know, I feel very proud of you for what you've done because I know this one's really from the heart and it feels like it's a real ode to love. Am I right? Yeah, it really is. Um, It's an ode to love and human connection and the acceptance of difference and kind of a return for me to the sort of films that I maybe that I used to make it's kind of it's 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 a return to the the puppet theater that my parents uh, ran right and and for people that don't know um Joe's parents have uh, had a little have still it's still running um, a little puppet theatre in London that's sort of in the back streets of Islington. And if you chance upon it, it's like stepping back in time and seeing something so magical. And And you grew up in that world, right? Yeah, my parents were puppeteers. They founded the theatre in 1961 and it's still running today. And they put on kind of shows that work for adults and children. Uh, so Oscar Wilde, fairy tales or Oliver Goldsmith or The Little Mermaid, but the version where she dies at the end, uh, not the Disney version. Um, uh, and so it kind of, this film reminds me of one of their puppet shows in a way. And in fact, the puppets that appear at the very beginning of the, the film, uh, my dad carved in 1948. Wow, I didn't know that. That's beautiful. And my mum, one of the, because we were making it during uh, the pandemic, uh, we had to find lots of ways to kind of overcome the constraints of shooting during the pandemic. And so my mum, who's now 84, made 160 leather masks 
with long sort of Cyrano noses, kind of based on the Commedia dell'arte mask, uh, to keep everyone safe. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, that was going to be my next question, <laughs> was, uh, you know, making a film during the pandemic, how... I imagine your crew's a lot smaller than you would normally have, but working with trusted old collaborators must have felt challenging in many ways, but quite a sort of return to your roots in in others, you know, working in such a sort of skeleton crew. Um, it actually wasn't that skeleton. Ah. Um, I'd been developing the project for two or three years um, with Erica Schmidt and uh, the writer. Um, and, you know, when we started the project, uh, it was very much about sort of difference and and kind of understanding or kind of a story about our similarities being cre- greater than our differences um, and compassion for others and all of this stuff, you know. And then the pandemic happened and suddenly it took on a greater relevance for me we'd been in lockdown for four or five months um when i finally felt we'd gotten the script to a good place and having been starved of human connection i felt like we needed to make this film about human connection and the difficulty to connect with each other so i called up eric fellner my partner at working title and i said eric it's time we've got to make this now and he said you're absolutely fucking crazy no one's making anything we're in the middle of a pandemic and i said come on we need to find a way what do you think the odds are he said you've got five percent chance of making this film now and so i said great that's fine five percent we'll take it and we went to our normal backers and they weren't they weren't doing anything so uh, we took it to mike deluca at mgm and within 24 hours, he came back to us and said, yep, we're doing it. And um, so we we all went out to the island of Sicily, which had had a very low COVID rate. And um, and we created a bubble and, um, and kind of made the film in defiance of what was happening in the world. And I think that kind of passion for the film from its makers kind of translated into the into the film itself i hope anyway yeah well, sicily has its own drama doesn't it? it has an atmosphere of drama so it sort of feels like that that's a perfect place for it and in terms of the uh origin you saw the play is that correct yeah there was a um hayley bennett invited me to a tiny workshop production that they were doing up at the chester theater in connecticut and um, it was like a hundred and seater theatre, and I'd always really loved the story, but then, and I kind of, you know, as a teenager, I'd seen the Gerard Depardieu version and 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 loved that, and felt somehow attached to it, being a kind of fat, spotty, awkward teenager, not really, you know, uh, feeling worthy of affection or love, but couldn't really see my way to a. Uh, another adaptation and then saw Pete playing Cyrano and suddenly that kind of opened up the whole thing for me and and made complete sense so I asked Haley's permission if I could approach them and she agreed and I did and we we set about developing it and in terms of your collaborators like Sarah Greenwood yeah and a lot of the people you work with have you've worked with for a long time yeah, Sarah Greenwood and I met on my first ever TV job when I was 27 years old. Um, and then Seamus McGarvey, I met in my 20s as well. 
Jacqueline Duran, who did uh, Roxanne's costumes, has been working with me since Pride and Prejudice. Mm. So a lot of the same team and 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 a lot of the same actors in, in smaller roles. You know, uh, the guy that plays the baker uh, has been in six of my films. Um, mm. And it's kind of, I don't know about you guys, you all DGA, I mean, you know, it's quite, exposing making a film you know I make films from my heart and therefore there's a lot of emotion involved as I make them and I like to be surrounded by people who know me and love me and and I love them and we we can kind of share that thing and like a company like a theatre company almost you know. Which department do you feel like changing up most <laughs> uh, ooh, I can't show. say that I mean I've, I've I guess I've worked with more DPs I mean like Sarah's designed everything it's I've ever done it's not meant to be a sort of mean question like ooh, who would you fire it's more that um, you know some for example cinematographer yeah. you do work with multiple and different ones and, and does that feel like that's a necessary change to kind of keep evolving in a different way or yeah I do I mean I think that you know I I, I'm always learning off my DPs and um and and I've I've learned, you know, from I've had amazing DPs and I keep on coming back to Seamus, he's my brother. But the last two films, for instance, before I did with Bruno Dubonil, mm-hmm. um, who is a very different kind of guy and has a very different aesthetic. Bruno, you'll know is did the the tragedy of Macbeth recently and um and Bruno taught me a huge amount you know um and and then I can bring that back to the family almost um I'll always return to Seamus uh Sarah Greenwood and Katie Spencer my production designer and set decorator there's just something about the the three of us working together that if I can possibly help it I never break that at all so, but my mum, it's also, I, I was thinking, I was talking to Sarah about it recently because my mum made all the, the costumes and the uh, painted the scenery and all of this for the puppet theatre. Um, and I'm very, very close with my mum. And um, and there's something about the craft of of it, you know, the craft of the puppet theatre mm-hmm. that, that, that plays out in my relationship with Sarah Greenwood. And she's the person I get on board first before anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, and has, has the biggest input into the process. Um, I once asked a director, I once asked, um, when I was about to make a movie, I, I asked Jim Brooks, I sit, happened to meet him, and, and I said to him, if you could give me one piece of advice from one director to another, what would it be? And he said, change your socks at three o'clock every day. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me a long time to process what felt like a very futile piece of advice. Then, on the uh, first day of making this movie, a box of socks arrived from him and and labelled each day. And that moment, three o'clock, you know, meaning a sort of three quarters of the way through, I would stop. And it was that moment of just feeling like a little bit reflective, a little bit of a moment to uh, freshen up and uh, and then move on. What would be if I asked you that question, which if I haven't, it's kind of strange because I would have maybe have asked you that along our journey. I've got it on my arm, tattooed on my arm there. It says, don't take it personally. Perfect. Um, uh, But yeah, I would say that. 
Um, that would probably be the, I mean, you know, cause yeah. you get stuff thrown at you all the time and not literally. Um, and, and the other tattoo actually says, start with the wide shot. <laughs> simple really? thing. Yeah. Simple. Is that a tattoo? Th- yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. There, look. Um, I, got my uh, <laughs> I forget that sometimes it's the simple things, you know, you arrive and you get so excited about the close up and you, and you shoot yourself into a corner with a close up and then realize that the wide shot doesn't work. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I storyboard everything I do. Um, we talked about that. I remember, you know, um, I storyboard or shot list. Um, I was very lucky to have a brilliant, brilliant, um, first AD on my first ever TV job called Bridget, uh, Rigby. And she said to me, I was so green. I was 27. I didn't know anything about what I was doing. I'd made some short films and I'd suddenly landed this three part drama for the BBC. And, um, in the back of a, of a, bus on the location scout she said to me you do do shot lists every day don't you and I was like yeah oh yeah yeah I, yeah absolutely so because all the great directors do shot lists I said yes now I do shot lists yeah and um and I got into a habit of it and uh and I still and I still do them and in a way they're a kind of safety net I don't actually have to shoot what's on the shot list but they stop you know if I don't have any better ideas on the day than I've always got the shot list there to fall back on. Mm. And they, they enable me to walk onto set and with some kind of confidence, you know. And do you shot list the entire movie before you start or do you do, this is for me actually, do you do it daily before? I do it. I, the DP and I mm. spend two weeks planning out the film and some of it's storyboard some of it's just about which window we're going to light through so I have a sense of the light direction and I know therefore where I can shoot and then some of it's shot lists and then I have a kind of ritual in the morning before going to set I kind of make sure I get up two hours before before I have to leave and I and I do a shot list every morning as well. That was something, I think it was a, who was it? It was uh, one of the great 70s directors that talked about, you know, their routine in the morning being the thing that sets them up and <clears throat> and just, you know, studying the script every morning, the pages, and then doing a shot list. And also you like a good rehearsal time too, to have that space with actors to really yeah. map out the journey. Yeah, we do about three weeks rehearsals on every film. Which is cheap, you know. I mean, it's 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 time well spent. Um, a lot of it's about having lunch, really, and just talking to each other and finding each other's rhythms. I'm a bit of a, I'm obsessed with rhythm, the rhythm of a scene, the rhythm of a shot, um, especially the rhythm of dialogue. And, uh, and so it's about finding each other's rhythms and being able to sort of lock in rhythmically. I remember that because I remember when you did Anna Karenina, you had the choreographer. Sidi Labi Shakawi. Yes. And and you had him sort of choreograph with you through not just the dance scenes. Yeah. Yeah. But also things like, I mean, in the bakery scene in this, Mm. the, you know, we worked really hard on the rhythm of that dialogue Mm. when Roxanne and, and Cyrano are looking uh, talking to each other and they're kind of they get dizzier and dizzier and the the rhythm 
the tempo and the rhythm builds and builds and builds and builds and builds up until the point where he suddenly realizes that she's not talking about him and then you can fall off a cliff and then you build up again. And it's sort of, it's why I kind of always say that filmmaking is most like music of all other art forms because it's time-based, you know, you're sculpting in time as Tarkovsky said. And how did it feel making a musical for um, it felt it quite natural. I was say. It felt, especially after Anna Karenina, which was a ballet, really. Mm. Um, that was the idea of that, and uh, and so to take it one step further, mm. all of the singing was recorded live on set on camera, and that was really important because I didn't. I'm not that much of a fan of musicals, really. Um, uh, so for me, it was a kind of. Um, musical for people who don't like musicals um uh which is a lot of people in europe actually it's it's interesting the responses you get i don't normally like musicals but um i remember i was i was doing the washing up one night and and the radio was on and i was singing along to bowie's Starman, and um suddenly i thought oh this is what the singing should be like it should be like singing along to something it should be as natural as that and having the music or the singing recorded live meant that they could just breathe into the song and it would be part of you know, a fluid kind of transition into the singing and then out again. And it's just a, you know, um, another mode of natural expression, really. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think recording it live does give it a freshness and a life to it. Sometimes when you feel like something's been recorded over, it's like, when you look at a painting that's been done from a photograph rather than a painting that's been done from yeah. natural life. Yeah, that's um, nice. Yeah. And also just think, I like the faults. I like, I like, for me, emotion is, is contained in the cracks. You know, there's that fridge magnet that says the cracks are there to let the light in, you know, whatever it is. It's that there's a, there's a sense that, I mean, there's a moment in the last scene where Haley forgets to sing the first two words of the chorus, um, and and then she joins Pete, and um, and it's wrong, but it feels it's so much more emotional like that, you know. Um, there's moments where they they're not breathing in the right place because their emotion is coming up in them, and 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 that is to me what what makes it human and i'm always trying to get at what makes it human you know the mess of being human it is messy (laughs) (laughs) yes yes as we've experienced together yeah we have (laughs) it's interesting now to sort of having looked at your trajectory and the choices you've made in your work and the journey that you've taken to think what you might be feeling like doing next not necessarily what you are doing next but what you might feel is your next exciting challenge i've made some films you know what's really nice is that i've got to a point now i've made nine films this is my ninth film and um and i've got to a point where i've gone okay i've tried you know i tried doing a big cgi film at one point uh, that was horrendous. Um, uh, it didn't work. It's not really me. Um, I've tried doing kind of, a, I, I tried doing a sort of dark thriller, like a kind of David Fincher movie. Um, that didn't work. It's not me. Uh, the films that have worked have been films or work better, you know, uh, have been films that have 
felt like they're me. And, and so I just want to make those now. Um, that means that they're generally films about human connection, how important human connection is, how we so often fail to connect as humans, films about love and compassion and, and kindness and innocence. Um, I'm not very cynical and I'm not very good with irony. And I'm now accepting that, that, that cynicism doesn't have a monopoly on intelligence. And so I'm more accepting of myself and therefore more of accepting of the types of films that come from me naturally rather than trying to be someone I'm not. And, and in choosing your material, I remember you once saying that the way you choose your material is if you read something that you know a secret about. Am I right in saying yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember yeah, yeah. you saying that it's, you read it and you're like, I, I know something about this that no one else knows, therefore I can interpret it in my way. Yeah, that's, I think that's true that, that, you know, sometimes I think about a project and I go, oh, this could be really good. And, and then you go, well, you know that there's probably 10 other directors who would do kind of the same thing. Whereas if there's something that I know a secret about that I kind of feel like no one would do it in the same way, not better or worse, just different, uh, then that's the one I should do really. And then how much time do you think we should take off between movies? Oh, well, you see, I've got to put food on the table. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm yeah. not, I, I don't have a sideline. I'm not a businessman, unfortunately, mm. like a lot of, you know, these guys who have a sideline or a production company that brings in mm. millions because of television. They do. I, all I do is make films and, um, and I've got a large family. So, and I don't, and all I, I love work. You know, I love making films. I love being on set. I love develop. I love being in a room with the writer. I love post-production. You know, I get to, now I get to edit at home and, um, and it's heaven. You know, we all have big lunches together with the kids and I just like working. I don't have any hobbies. Um, I can't do anything else. Um, uh, it's, it's just about the work and, um, and the work is a, practice it's a kind of without wanting to sound like hippy dippy or weird it's a spiritual practice to make work mm -hmm. you know I learn about myself and the world through the making of the work and and it's what sustains me mm -hmm. others call it workaholism and that I should probably kind of figure out how to deal with that but so so generally I make a film every two or three years I was going to ask you what was your favorite part of the process, but I think in you saying what you just said, it's every aspect of it. There's I love the whole process. Mm. And, you know, and, it, and the whole process is kind of, you know, so I love the, the, that the, the, the pre-production when anything is possible and then the slow whittling down of finding the idea and, until you refine it to a point where it can be nothing else. I love shooting, but shooting requires me to build my ego up to a level that, you know, enables me to walk onto set every day and tell 150 people or however many what to do. Uh, and then post-production is about deconstructing the ego and facing all my, you know, failures and how massively I 
fucked up and um excuse language and um and so you have to it's a complete process you know and the film reveals itself to you we are always humbled by our craft you know what i mean it's like i'll never beat my craft um the film will always win and so um so so that's that's important to me you know here's a question i don't expect you to know the answer to or but it's it's interesting for me as somebody i've seen you work and i've seen how you work and you know from from the acorn germination of an idea to the expansive creation of the movies that you create you're very in there you're very hands on your thought process your every every aspect of it is your dna your films have had 24 Oscar nominations, and as a director, you haven't. Why do you think that happens? And I'm not saying that's a flaw in you. I wonder if that's a flaw in how we look at movies and directors. And it's really a question sort of to everyone to, th- to sort of <laughs> ruminate upon in a way, because it always surprises me sometimes when you know a movie can be nominated for Best Picture, but a director can't even though it's been their movie from the dust up. Maybe it's more food for thought than something you can answer. I don't know. I mean, you know, the whole... Um, and, and especially in this time where all the build-up yeah. and everything and all, all of the screenings and, you know, everything that goes into having a movie out into the world, it's really sort of blood, guts and... It is. Know. I mean, I feel like this is the bit we get paid for. I would don't tell them, but I would actually make the films for nothing. Um, uh, but I remember my first ever on Pride and Prejudice, my first film. Um, my my producer at the time said, "You know, only one in ten first time film directors ever makes a second film." And I was like, "Oh Jesus! Um, right, that's terrible news. I've got to keep going. I've got to." And so for me, the work itself is the reward, and I mean that genuinely. Box office is, you know, really important. Um, uh, bums on seats and um, and awards are great, but the point about it is to enable me to be able to make another one and another one and another one. And I just kind of like working. Mm. Um, why um, why that happens? I don't know. It's you know, it's um, when they tell me it's a popularity contest. I think I must not be very popular. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just as a side note, I think it's one in three women directors get to make a second film. <laughs> really? That's shocking. Kind of. Um, if um, we don't normally do questions, or I've said, but if anyone has any burgeoning questions, otherwise we'll, we'll wrap it up. Yes. Okay, so the question was, how many shooting days were there on Serena? I have this weird ability to know exactly how many shooting days are going to be required. So I told them it would be 53 and they said, no, you can have 48. So I went, all right, you can tell me I'll have 48, but it will be 53. And it was 53. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that's gone down. I mean, you know, when we did atonement, it was 63. Um, and over the past, however many years, um, that's been whittled away and, certainly time is the greatest commodity we have you know so that i find really upsetting with the songs um, in the original production the songs uh in the original production um 
the score kind of ran throughout the entire production. I mean, throughout the entire play, um, uh, which I wasn't, I, I like music to have a very specific, you know, role. Um, there were, some of the songs were in, some of the songs were new songs. I retooled certain songs. So um, every letter, for instance, the one that all three of them sing together, uh, that song was sung only by Roxanne and it came during the war sequence um, and had a very different kind of um, role. But I didn't feel it worked there, but I wanted a song that somehow connected all three of them in a sort of menage a trois without ever being in the same room. So we kind of retooled that song, um, changed all the lyrics, changed, yeah. So kind of the, the song, yeah, I mean, and the National were, were, were writing the music for that production too. What's your process of blocking, Joe? Um, I love blocking. It's one of my favourite things in life to do is blocking um, uh, and bodies, physical storytelling in space. Uh, and I'm always really interested in the line and kind of that's where we were at with Anna Karenina is where the line between blocking and dance uh, happens. Uh, we start with really simple intentions, really. What's the intention of this scene? Uh, we know who the characters are by that point. So we're looking at um, how they might move themselves. When we did Darkest Hour, for instance, Gary and I started with how uh, Churchill would walk. Actually, we didn't. We started with how he breathed and and then that that breathing rhythm went into the walking rhythm. So the 10 men fight, the, the single take in this, you can... It, it's like you you just have to start and one action leads to the next action leads to the next action um and it's a kind of process of problem solving really um once you've decided that that's what you're going to do and i always try and i mean you know it's important that those kind of shots have a reason and they're not just kind of you know um, there for the sake of it and so for this for that scene it was really about proving Cyrano given his height proving his abilities his fighting abilities undeniably great let's send on that question thank you all right I think everyone thanks Sam good evening thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A if you'd like to hear more the Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Director's Guild of America 